0: History Talk, the podcast that brings together experts to discuss current events and historical perspective. My name is Lauren Henry, and I'm here with my co-host, Eric Michael
1: Rhodes. Hey, Lauren. In July 2018, Mexican voters broke with decades of precedent and elected Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, former Mexico City mayor and populist agitator to the presidency. The election of Obrador, who is often referred to by his initials, AMLO, represents a sea change in Mexican politics. Since the Mexican Revolution, he is only the third president not to come from the long-dominant Institutional Revolutionary Party. AMLO was the first candidate to receive more than half of the electorate's vote. He is also the first openly leftist president since the Great Depression. As president, AMLO faces a bevy of pressing issues spiraling inequality and corruption, a record high murder rate of nearly 30,000 murders in 2017, not to mention an increasingly bellicose neighbor to the north. His ability to deal with these manifold challenges will determine not only his political future, but the fate of the country as a whole.
0: To help us make sense of the historical forces that have led to AMLO's election, we're very lucky to be joined today by two highly esteemed scholars of modern Mexico. First, we have Dr. Elena Alberan, who is Associate Professor of History and Global and Intercultural Studies at Miami University. Dr. Alberan studies revolutionary and social movements in Mexico and Latin America, with a particular interest in the history of childhood and visual culture. She's joining us today from Oxford, Ohio. Thank you for speaking with us, Elena. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here to talk today.
1: And in the studio today is Reina Esquivel-King. A PhD candidate in Latin American history at The Ohio State University, Reina specializes in the history of modern Mexico. She is currently completing her dissertation on Mexican film and the construction of Mexican national identity. Welcome, Reina.
2: Hello. Thank you for having me.
1: In 2018, more than 56 million Mexican voters went to the polls in what observers have called the biggest election in Mexican history, delivering a decisive victory for AMLO and a major defeat for the PRI. What were some of the issues around which the election turned?
3: Some of the pressing issues that are ongoing, they're not new to 2018, but that really occupied a lot of time and space, especially in the debates among the candidates. Are the issues of the increasingly powerful drug cartels and kind of connected to that, to the issues of political corruption that often have some bearing on the power of the drug cartels. Those issues were pretty foremost in the conversations that the candidates were having. Other issues were education reform, and less than you would think were issues of relations with the U.S., although it did come up. It wasn't nearly as much of a part of the national conversation as I think gets projected in our national media here in the
0: U.S. Just to give us a bit of background here today, traditionally Mexican politics have been dominated by the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or the PRI, who have held the presidency for 76 of the last 90 years. What are the origins of the PRI, and how did they become the dominant force in Mexican politics during the last century? I can uh, jump in and give a
3: brief background about the origins of the PRI. Many people know it by the PRI. It started off as the PNR in 1929, which was the Partido Nacional de la Revolución, which was begun by a president from the revolutionary administration, Plutarco Elias Calles. But it, it, it got its final name of the PRI in 1946, the party of the institutional revolution. So people consider that history of the pre, even though it's gone through several name changes, t- to go all the way back to 1929. It was basically intended to centralize the state, to democratize Mexico by putting lots of state agencies and bureaus out into more provincial areas of Mexico. But ultimately, that democratizing structure over the course of the 20th century kind of flipped to become an authoritarian structure and rather than democratizing more of a way of effecting a kind of a top-down control over even the most provincial areas in Mexico.
2: My work actually centers on the bureaucracies created during the Cárdenas administration from 1934 to 1940. I think a lot of people consider that really the heart of the structure of bureaucracy with him and he's considered kind of a legacy from Zapata and via this beacon of hope for Mexico. So I think it became such a dominant force because they do implement a lot of funding, state funding either, like Dr. Alvaran said, that they do education reform in the 1920s and 1930s, trying to reach out to the indigenous population, even though they didn't always succeed. And then they also do with film as well, giving a lot of money to state funding for films that also preach a certain message of the pre-party. So it's like authoritarian with this message of democratization, but really you could only get money in in regards to film and things like that if you had a message that was
1: positive of the pre-party.
0: And that's Lazaro Cardenas, right? Yeah, Lazaro Cardenas. Excellent.
1: And Reina, would you mind elaborating a little bit on what you mean by the legacy of Zapata and this The meaning in Mexican history.
2: Well, the Mexican Revolution really centers on Zapata, as somebody who's the father of Morelos in the state of Morelos, who really wanted land back to the peasants, and he really embodied what the ideals were for the revolution. And during the 1920s, people were a little disappointed. So it's with Cardenas where we do see a massive land reform and, of course, the nationalization of oil in 1938. He kind of takes that legacy and moves it forward. So people are kind of seeing the promises of the revolution fulfilled.
0: In 2018, Anlo ran under a coalition heading of Together We Will Make History. Now, We've just spoken a bit about this longer history of 20th-century Mexican politics and specifically 20th-century leftism. What are some of the ways that AMLO has deployed Mexican history to his advantage during his campaign and even afterwards?
3: AMLO himself is a sort of historian in his own right. He's written, uh, I think, 17 books. Not all of them are history, but some of them could be classified as traditional works of history. His wife, Beatriz gutierrez Mueller is also a historian and a journalist, and so more than any other president in Mexico's history, AMLO has really, really identifies with with history as a narrative, as a narrative process, has studied it, and really inserts himself in it very intentionally. So I think this is actually a, a really fascinating aspect of the AMLO presidency, is the incredibly conscious level in which historical narratives, images, rhetoric, and uh, historical literacy are inserted into almost everything that he does politically. So, for example, the name of his coalition, Juntos haremos Historia, which is Together We Make History, as you mentioned, itself is a way of reframing the historical narrative that puts him kind of at the end of it. So one of the things that comes to mind right away is within the first day of his presidency, they unveiled a new logo for the website of the Gobierno de Mexico, the website, which is the portal to all Mexican government services. It's a catchy red and white graphic that says Juntos Haremos Historia, and then it has together A very carefully selected pantheon of national heroes that include the independence heroes morelos and hidalgo at the center it includes benito juarez mexico's first indigenous president from the mid-19th century to the late 19th century it has francisco madero who technically won the Mexican Revolution of 1910, and Lázaro Cárdenas, who we've already spoken about, that very reform-oriented, redistribution-oriented revolutionary president of the 1930s. So that careful selection of national heroes as the kind of reinscribed history of heroes that is legible to all Mexicans is interesting not just for the individuals that it includes, but it's also very interesting for the individuals that it does not include. Zapata is not included in that selection of national heroes, which is a really tactical omission, but all of these, the heroes, Morelos, Hidalgo, Juarez, Madero, and Cárdenas, all represent, I think, a different aspect of a very classically interpreted liberalism That's part of Mexico's political heritage, political liberty, technical, legal liberalism from represented by Juarez and the efforts towards democratization put forth by Madero, but in a in a very kind of moderate way. And then Cardenas represents the most radical of those, and you could argue that this goes from, you know, conservative towards uh, more liberal and from left to right in this pantheon of heroes, suggesting that Amlos comes as in a direct lineage from Cardenas. I think that logotype it itself has lots of space for analysis as it speaks to how the everyday Mexican sees that as a representation of Mexico's new government.
2: I think the connection with Cardenas is very clear, and I, it's different, but I also see it very much rooted in this very traditional rewriting of history, especially during the post-revolutionary period where you have all of the murals taking place, and you do have Morelos and Padre Hidalgo, and you have certain characters placed in them, and you continually see them wherever you go within Mexican history, so it's super familiar to everybody that's how you get most of the classes involved. You don't have to be able to read or you don't have to know a lot of history. You have to be super educated to understand who these people are and what they represent.
1: Would these have been the murals by artists such as Diego Rivera Mm -hmm. that you're referencing?
2: Yeah, Diego Rivera, Sequeros, yeah.
1: In the same vein, in terms of how AMLO has been channeling Mexican history, he speaks often about hearkening a fourth transformation. Can either of you speak to what he means by this?
3: This is a a really cosmic approach towards history that I appreciate as a historian. And I think future teachers of Mexican history are gonna have a lot of fun unpacking what the fourth transformation was intended to mean and what it does mean. We can't speak too much about it yet in terms of what it's accomplishing, but we can certainly talk about what's being projected by the Fourth Transformation. So he calls his whole government the Fourth Transformation, or the Fourth Transformation, the hashtag shortcut for referring to his whole government is just 4T, so you'll see references to just like the 4T and that's a shorthand for Amla's entire government. So the Fourth Transformation itself asks the everyday Mexican to harken back to four transformational moments as written in the official history of Mexico. These are very subjective. Not every historian would agree that these are the turning points in Mexican history or the only ones or the most significant ones, but this is the way that official history works. It's carefully kind of curating A lineage. So the first transformation is obviously independence, where Mexico becomes a nation. That process lasts from 1810 to 1821. So that's the first moment of transformation that's referred to. The second transformation is la reforma, or the period of liberal reforms that's headed by Benito Juarez, that first indigenous president that I mentioned to you from 1858 to 1861. And so during that period, it's really the kind of last gasp of the fight between liberals and conservatives as the prevailing dueling ideologies in Mexico. And you see the kind of final separation of church and state, which was at the core of some of those struggles, although not the only issue at, at hand. The Mexican Revolution that we've made reference to from 1910 to 1920 is the third transformation. And that's a civil war that frees Mexico from the long-term administration and dictatorship of uh, Porfirio Diaz from 1876 to 1911 and, and ushers in a government that does not just lip service but very, in the first couple of decades, transformational redistribution of land, resources, and access to government to the historically marginalized and predominantly rural and indigenous population. So following those three moments of transformation, AMLO is positioning his fourth transformation as his administration. What's different from the fourth transformation is that this is intended to be a peaceful one all the other ones took the form of a, a war. And so this is intended to be a peaceful transformation that's carried out through democracy. And there's sort of a almost like a messianic power of this type of promise that he's going to deliver the ultimate liberation to the Mexican people at this moment, a hundred and some odd years after the last transformation has taken place.
1: So as we've seen, Amlo is far from a political outsider. It's also not his first time with presidential politics either. He ran for president on two prior occasions in 2006 and 2012. And the 2006 election was particularly close, with AMLO losing by only half a percent. Could you talk us through some of the controversies that surrounded the 2006 election?
3: I see the the relationship between the 2006 campaign and the 2018 campaign really tied to each other. I was living in Mexico City in, in 2006, so I I witnessed that election firsthand. And I actually got to see Ablo speak a few times, sometimes just in the neighborhood I was living in. He would just kind of pop up and people would cluster around. And he was notable for showing up in his bomber jacket and being very unofficial, very populist, and not not wearing a suit, not projecting that uh, image of the traditional political figure. But in 2006, the election was... For the first part of the year, it was kind of a tight three-way race between the candidates. Between the candidate At the time, he was running on the PRD ticket, the leftist ticket, of the party of Cuauhtémoc Cárdenas. He was running against Felipe Calderón, who was the pan, uh, the PAN party candidate, which is the conservative party, and Carlos Madrazo, who was the pre-candidate. The three of them were kind of neck and neck for the first half of the year at the end. Madraso and the Prix started to fall behind and ultimately ultimately it came down to a very tight race between Amlo and calderon. I think he i think calderon won by a a point six two percent margin if I'm not mistaken a very very slim margin, something like a national total of 200,000 votes. So the margin was as slim as it could possibly be and certainly warranted a recount. But all kinds of uh, mysterious things happened to ballot boxes that made a recount impossible. And ultimately, Calderón took the oath of office in a very rushed ceremony that took place at midnight and wasn't the grand spectacle, that's the staged grand spectacle that people are accustomed to with the toma de protesta of a president. In the wake of this, Amlo kind of took to the scene and contested the election to no real avail legally. But he did hold a meeting in the Zócalo, which is Mexico City's central plaza, right in front of the National Palace and adjacent to the National Cathedral. And he called everybody who was present there a delegate. There were stations set up around the city for people who had come in to attend this meeting in the Zócalo, and people came on horseback. People came walking from Durango, which is really far away. We talked to people who had come from Zacatecas. Group, uh, indigenous groups came up from the south and from the coast barefoot, people were coming barefoot, all uh, converging on Mexico City to attend this meeting that AMLO had called in protest of not uh, having been given the opportunity to contest the election. And so people would come to these stations. There was one set up at the very iconic Monument of the Revolution, a few blocks away from the Zocalo, where people would go and they would receive their credenciales, which is like an a, 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 a official ID, and it was signed by dignitaries of his party. Famously, the, the author Elena Poniatowska at the time was one of his cabinet members. He started to form a cabinet, even though he had no official position. And so everybody got these IDs, and they were asked to affix their own photograph to the IDs and write their name into it, and they wore them around their necks like they were at a convention. Everybody converged in the Zocalo. It was packed. And he got up on the stage and and gave a speech, and he held a, a plebiscite and said, "We have two options moving forward: I can step back, you know, concede the election, or I can, with your vote, be voted the presidente legítimo, or the legitimate president of Mexico, by your vote. Raise of hands." So the public screamed that they should, you know, do the vote by the raise of hands. And so he said, everyone who thinks that I should be voted the Presidente Legitimo de Mexico, uh, raise your hands. And everybody raised their hands in a roaring clamor. And somebody came up and put the presidential sash on him. And he claimed from that point that he was the Presidente Legitimo de Mexico. Now, of course, this is symbolic. Of course, this has no legal bearing. It meant a lot to the people who had walked there from far-flung states in Mexico to feel that active participation in a democratic process uh, and see an immediate result take place. The longer-term outcome of this, of course, is that it put AMLO in a position of being roundly ridiculed by people that considered themselves to be legitimate politicians in their own right. And so he got the nickname of, you know, presidente Legitimo that became very tongue in cheek by a lot of people who referred to him. But he immediately set about putting together, uh, finishing putting together his cabinet and functioning like a parallel government. Of course, he didn't have any jurisdiction but he started a process of of campaigning around the country to visit every Mexican municipality, something no politician and probably no person had ever done before over the course of the sexenio, or the six year period of the presidency. So as Presidente Legitimo, he showed up in every municipality in Mexico over the course of the next six years, sat down, ate tacos, rode horseback, you know, drank hot chocolate in the markets with people. Very much an echo of the kind of style of politics that Lázaro Cárdenas did in the 1930s. And so while that was the subject of kind of ridicule from the political elite, that really formed the basis of gaining his popularity in the 2018 election, which he won with 53% of the vote, which is an astronomical percentage given a a party Mm -hmm. system that often runs multiple parties against each other, not just a two-party system.
0: So you mentioned the fact that AMLO in 2006 had this far-flung support. And in fact, in these two prior elections, I believe, AMLO did quite well in the South. I wondered if there was a historical component to this, whether or not there are regional differences that translate to political differences historically in Mexico, thinking, you know, all the way back to the 1930s.
2: Yeah, I would definitely say, well, because a lot of those states do have indigenous people, a large indigenous and rural population, which is much different than you're going to find, obviously, in central, like Mexico City, or like Guadalajara, the state of Jalisco, they're all big, bigger municipalities, and then along the border. So you have different regional politics, but definitely in the south, on um, the south, of course, is where uh, Zapata forms his, and then the state of Morelos is where he's from. And that's where they form their his army, which is all full of uh, peasants and people and indigenous people who want their land back. So I think think too and she as we talked like with Cardenas they do pretty well he does pretty well there too because he gives land away and it is more of this traditional politics of I'm not a politician I'm like one of the people kind of kind of idea that others in the 1920s hadn't done
1: mm-hmm. so
2: and you can definitely see then that to Amno with why, why he's done so well in the southern states. Mm-hmm. And that's probably why people walk, walk so far from Drango and things like that, because he is more he's someone that you can relate to. And uh, again, he's trying to carry, I feel, this legacy of being for the people, liberating the people, giving them more access to government um, necessities and things like that.
3: I'm thinking about, yeah, I'm thinking about these these southern states and what their realities have been in the last few decades. And it would it, it's kind of hard to paint them all with a single brush because they are really diverse and do have a long history of, of being excluded from, from national politics. It certainly helps that Amlo made a point of, you know, visiting equally during his stint as legitimate president, um, visiting equally, you know, all of these regions of Mexico. And he himself is from a southern state. He's from Tabasco. And he does have more of a, a regional affinity for that, for that part of the of the country that's often marginalized. So I, I can't really speak specifically to the electorate in each state and how they might have responded to some of the other candidates, but I do think there might be something there to the echoes of the, the, the kind of representational politics that he at least espouses rhetorically that does promote a, a pro- I'm a little bit reluctant to say pro-Indigenous stance because the last few weeks' news cycle has made a little bit <laughs> made that a little bit more complicated. But he has at least done lip service to a more inclusive government. One of the things that he's done in the first few months of his administration is is take the first steps towards decentralizing the government. This is a really controversial and kind of unheard of thing, where he's setting sending the state or the different agencies and bureaus of the government to have headquarters in different states across the republic they've all been housed in Mexico City but he's sending the secretaría de educación pública which is the public education bureau he's sending that to Puebla i think he's sending the bureau of uh culture and tourism to another state foreign relations i mean he's he's Really decentralizing the government in a very literal way, and the goal is to try to draw some of these more far-flung or less incorporated states into the national political life a little bit more. It is going to make bureaucracy, which is already uh, pretty thick in Mexico, is going to make it a lot trickier to navigate. I think in the in the shorter term. But anyway, those are some of the kinds of ways that he really delivers on his promises to attend to the regions of Mexico that haven't been usually paid much attention to Mm -hmm. at the national level.
1: So to stick to these themes that we're discussing of exclusion, indigeneity, the south of Mexico, when Mexico does enter the U.S. news cycle, uh, it's predominantly about the U.S. border with Mexico, but... Mexico's southern border has entered into the country's political sphere as well. Is this a new phenomenon? Could you speak to Mexico's historical relationship to its southern neighbors? And what's shaping the current news cycle in Mexico with regard to Guatemala and Nicaragua and Honduras?
2: I mean, I guess I'm, th- I'm thinking of the well. The first thing that comes to mind is Chiapas. The state of Chiapas has always been... <clears throat> A little bit hostile. I mean, and you can see with NAFTA and uh, the movement, uh, the the Zapatista movement that was then, you know, down there in Chiapas after NAFTA and after um, Mexico removing part of their constitution, which would take away that land that they granted. To this the was in
1: the early nineties. Yeah,
2: yeah. That I mean, that was of course mostly Mexico, but also entered the news in the United States too, because people were worried about, about that. And it's been a pretty hostile environment, um, especially because I don't think they're they're not included very much in the in the national government. When they were obviously with NAFTA, their lands were taken away, so they weren't part of making that decision. So I think that that's the first thing that came to my to my mind is the indigenous fights there, and also a lot of again with Guatemala and being so close, a lot of them are all Mayan as well, so they have more of a cultural roots with with Guatemala more than, let's say, like other parts of Mexico and Central Mexico.
3: Yeah, waves of migration from Central America are are not new, but they have been cyclical, and they're not always directly a result of uh, failed U.S. foreign policy in the area, but almost always. The major significant wave was in the 80s with the Cold War era genocides that US trained paramilitary troops, especially in El Salvador um, and Guatemala, were levying on their indigenous populations. That led to waves of asylum seekers coming up through Mexico and trying to pass as Mexican in the process to make their way to El Norte or to the north. That wave in Mexico kind of, I think, triggered some sentiments of racial anxiety and in Mexico against the neighbor that their neighbors to the south some of which are coming back again in full force with the most recent waves of migration from Central America which are also a result of endemic gang violence that are part of the aftermath of the US sponsored war on drugs that pushed the much of the Colombian trade up through the landmass of the Americas through Central America. That's not the only factor. There's also some climate change factors that are pushing migrations out of Central America and through Mexico. And so in Mexico, there is mixed response to the migrants that are coming through. In some ways, you see a direct echo of the kind of Really strident nationalism that we see on our southern border with Mexico, those sites of contact really become the places where those anxieties are most strongly felt um, and acted upon emotionally and physically on this, like, you know, militarized line. But on the other hand, there's an incredible culture and network of solidarity, of charity of brotherhood, and I don't want that to go unremarked upon as well. Unfortunately, a lot of that is done entirely through goodwill and private initiatives. It's not uh, got the sponsorship and the backing of the government, right? And a lot of it also, you see a lot of involvement. Transnational aid uh, organizations and individuals will go and help at these migrant centers that provide resources, places to rest, directions, advice to migrants that are making their way through Mexico. So we see both things. It's an echo of what we have in our country in the response to waves of immigration. And it's, it's a lot like our southern border. It's militarized, it's fraught, and it isn't new, but I think it's evolving in the same context as, as Mexico's northern, northern border is evolving in terms of the way it fits into the respective national discourses.
2: It's not new, but I think you're right with the evolving, especially with social media so heavily, we can see we can see it as in real time. And a lot of them use social media in order to find places to meet and things like that. Um, I know some of the groups, the organizations that do help people down there, that's how they're able to, to find them. So I think that's a huge part of why it's also become a national rhetoric, because more, more of it can be seen. So this happened in the 80s, too, but it's not... Something you can just like pick up your phone and see people marching in real time.
0: One of the things that we're always really interested in uh, with our podcast and something that I think has been really, you know, wonderfully exemplified today is the way in which earlier events such as the crisis in the 1980s then have a sort of knock on effect throughout the way that issues are seen you know, in, in subsequent generations. To that end, I was wondering about how thinking about the 2018 election, we can see it not only as the culmination of these sort of more recent phenomenons with corruption and issues with the cartels, but also as a moment in which historical resonances in other directions are coming into play. That is to say, 2018 is obviously the 50th anniversary of Tlatelolco Massacre. Can one of you tell us exactly what it was and what happened in this event, which I know is still has a very strong <laughs> effect on the way people think about everything from you know, student rights and organizing to the relationship between the state and the people in Mexico?
3: Yeah, so the Tlatelolco Massacre was, um, that's the unofficial name of what happened, but in 1968, actually years of student protests which had begun in the late 1950s that were increasingly requesting that the pre-government of Mexico, the PRI, be accountable to its citizens and be transparent across a lot of areas was gaining momentum in the global context with student movements and other types of civil movements taking place over the world. So this happened in a context in which Mexico City was poised to host the 1968 Olympics, the first non-Western or not, or less developed um, ter- country to, to do so in the history of the franchise. And so there was a lot of pressure on Mexico to project itself as modern, stable, democratic, and safe for people who might have uh, reservations about heading down. So. In that context, there were a series of student protests that were had been put down by the government, by the special forces, which are called the Granaderos or the Riot Police. And on one episode on October 2nd in 1968, a, student, a group of students had been converged peacefully in the Plaza de Tlatelolco, which is a working class neighborhood, just south of Mexico, or just north of Mexico City, and uh, they were gathering to have a peaceful demonstration, singing songs, having hosting speeches, and as night fell, some of the special but kind of paramilitary forces, and we don't actually have all the full information of who was involved, but agents of the Mexican government um, opened fire on the students that were collected there in the plaza, and. Anywhere from the official number of 40 to larger estimates of 700, but probably more in the average area of 300 plus, people were assassinated in that episode. Hundreds if not thousands of others were arrested and detained, some for years uh, following that event. That very authoritarian and violent crackdown on its own population primarily just to save face before the Olympics is something that is a really kind of shameful piece of of Mexico's legacy. And since then Mexico, the Mexican government has very much owned responsibility for that episode and in fact they've constructed a whole museum of memory right on the site of where the right adjacent to the site of where the massacre took place. That's a very well-funded space for people to tell the stories and recount and collect evidence about what happened at that event. In the last few years, in the in the year or so leading up to the 50th anniversary, there's been a real push to make public all documentation that exists regarding the massacre at Tlatelolco. And in particular, the UNAM, Mexico's National University, has a, a marvelous digitized project where you can go and it's a lot of private, collections, but it's newspaper clippings, documents from the student organizations from the National Strike Committee, the CNH, all kinds of internal documents have all been digitized and are open for public use, and that's just one agency that's that's begun to digitize a lot of the material. So there's rich archival material available about this. It's one of the areas where Mexico's been very transparent about its history in an in a concerted effort to move forward. That said, in 2018, during the campaign, there were some more student protests that had so much of an echo that people started borrowing the graphics from the 1968 movement and adapting them to modern purposes. And students at the National University were demanding resignation of the rector, demanding um, the disbandment, the disbanding of this unofficial, they're called porras, they're um, kind of like strike breakers for student protests. They kind of come in dressed as if they are members of a certain student body, and then they commit violent acts of sabotage and to try to gain negative press for the students that are protesting. Those are hired by politicians who are trying to de- destabilize the political process. So a lot of that student unrest began to see a resurgence, and the students themselves were cognizant of the echoes of 1968 and brought that historical memory back to life by recycling the graphics, recycling a lot of the language, and making explicit references to government corruption, government collusion with drug cartels, and framing it as a continuation of 1968 in a moment in which the Mexican government has tried to kind of move beyond 1968 as the way that the government does politics. So there's a lot of, students are really aware of the power of those historical narratives to still draw the attention of the previous generations who are now the political elite.
1: A few years before 2018, 43 students disappeared on the way to a demonstration in the state of Guerrero. In what ways were the echoes of Tlatelolco present in the aftermath of that scandal? And how has it played out in politics since since then?
3: That is a very tightly paired... <laughs> episode again with 1968, specifically because it resulted in the probably death, right? they they don't have any forensic evidence that suggests the whereabouts of these missing 43 students, except for I think um, bone fragments from one finger were positively identified as one or maybe two students, but of the 43 they don't have grades, they don't have bodies, they don't have answers about where these students went, but what is almost certain is that there's a level of the government, the municipal, and maybe the state, and potentially the national government being complicit in either the initial disappearance or the immediate cover-up of the disappearance of of these 43 students of education. They were um, normal school students, so they were studying for to be teachers. The main impact of that event at the national level was the fact that the president at the time Enrique Peña Nieto who was from the pre party dealt with it very poorly this contributed to him achieving the lowest i think approval ratings of any president ever at the at the low point towards the end of his presidency he he dealt with the the issue very poorly and did not immediately call for the fullest and deepest investigation that could take place. He did not immediately mobilize all of the national resources to try to get to the bottom of the disappearance of the students. The best work on this subject is by the journalist Anabel Hernandez, who just pretty recently wrote the book La Verdadera Noche de Iguala, or the, The True Night of Iguala, which the name of the episode, sort of, of what happened at Ayotzinapa. She's just recently been awarded the Freedom of Speech Award from the German press, the first woman to ever, to ever gain that recognition. But in an era in Mexico in which journalists are the number one targeted victims of assassination by drug cartels, it's a really dangerous time to be doing this kind of investigative reporting And so there isn't as much vigorous journalism to uncover what's going on as there could be under other circumstances. That's what what differentiates it a, a bit from what happened in 1968, is just the sheer extra legal danger that surrounds topics of government collusion and corruption that characterizes our present moment.
0: We'll wrap it up on that note. Thank you to both of our guests. Dr. Alina Albaran and Reina Esquivel-King.
1: Thanks, everyone. This episode of History Talk was brought to you by Origins, Current Events, and Historical Perspective, an online publication of the Public History Initiative, the Goldberg Center, and the History Departments at The Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Our main editors are David Steigerwald, Stephen Kahn, and Nicholas Breitvogel. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Lauren Henry and Eric Michael Rhodes. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more on our website origins.osu.edu, on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and wherever else you get your podcasts. As always, you can find us on Twitter at originsosu and at History Talk Pod. Thanks for listening.
0: See you next month.